202-209-2950 or go to give to WBAI.org online. Give to the number two WBAI.org online. And just wanted to remind folks that throughout the month of June, we will be in uh, we're in the middle of a campaign uh, that will hopefully help fund our uh, transmitter so we could pay the bills that will go to the transmitter uh, so we could continue on doing what we have been doing for so long. And and just as a reminder again, I um, oh, just want to get this over here. Okay. And just as a reminder, um, we are behind the rent. Okay. We're not just behind the rent for the transmitter, but we're definitely behind the rent here at WBAI, uh, the studios at WBAI at 388 Atlantic Avenue. We're two months behind the rent in the transmitter. We're three months behind the rent here at the studios of WBAI. We need your help. The rent for uh, for the transmitter is $17,000 a month. The rent for the studios here at WBAI is seventeen uh, is uh, $10,000 a month. You can do the math. 212. 212- 209-2950 is the number to call to show your support to this radio station. And we continue doing what we've been doing since 1960. 212-209-2950. I give this information, I share this information to the listening audience, not to fetishize bad news, but to inform the listening audience that when the listening audience knows that there is a situation with WBAI historically has shown that the listeners comes through and come through very, very hard. And we need that support like today. 212-209-2950 or go to give to WBAI.org. I wish that there were endowments. I wish that there were uh, a huge money donations. I wish that there were surpluses that would exist right now so it would prevent me to talk and not say anything about this. But unfortunately, they don't exist. Which is why I'm appealing to the listening audience right now to show your support to this radio station. 212-209-2950 or go to give to WBAI.org online. And whatever you do and how often you do it, we appreciate your help. Stay tuned for the Independent News Hour coming up. It is almost three minutes past 5 p.m. here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. Stay tuned. Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website, online at independent.org. That's I N D Y P E N D E N T dot O R G. And I'm joined by my co host, Amba Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Yes, and we have a fantastic show today. We're going to, uh, we're going to look uh, back at two very exciting gatherings, massive gatherings this weekend that brought together thousands of organizers for economic justice from across the country. One was in Washington, D.C., where the Poor People's March uh, rallied on Saturday and continued to hold events over the rest of the holiday weekend. And in Chicago, uh, a historic Labor Notes conference of uh, rank-and-file uh, self-described troublemakers in the labor movement who have been uh, propelling much of the organizing uh, that has been taking place over the last year that has really 
uh, energized uh, so many people, the Amazon labor unions, Starbucks, and, and many others. So we're going to hear about both of those events. Later on, we'll talk uh, with an organizer from uh, Rec- the Reclaim Pride Coalition that is organizing the fourth annual Queer Liberation March, which will take place this upcoming Sunday. And later in the show, also I have some of the latest news from uh, uh, the electoral world. The Democratic primaries are one week from today here in New York, and there are a number of uh, left candidates that are challenging machine incumbents. So, so we'll talk a little bit about that uh, toward the end of the show. But Amba, you were at the Poor People's March in Washington, D.C., on uh, on Saturday, both as a, a, a participant, a, a reporter, and uh, everything else, uh, can you uh, uh, tell us a little bit about what that was like? And uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, take it away. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So it was great to be there on Saturday in D.C. um, as a part of basically the Moral Monday movement with tens of thousands of others um, gathering for the poor people's low and wage workers assembly and moral march. So really it was um, a a short march, but mostly an assembly that lasted about six hours over the course of the day um, on Saturday on Pennsylvania Ab Avenue. And, um, you know, represented and present were members from sort of a slew of organizations on the left organizations that involve sort of poor people, uh, workers, Tons of unions are represented. We had uh, the homeless union as well. So unions beyond just uh, people employed at a certain place. We have the poor workers union, um, United Assembly of, of uh, the, the U.S. I could go on um, immigrant groups, anti-war groups, um, socialist groups, communist groups. And um, they were all led uh, by speakers um, on a main stage there on Pennsylvania Ave and they had speakers from, uh, who had sort of witnessed some level of poverty in the last two years, particularly under co- under COVID um, people sharing stories about the nation's failure to respond to COVID uh, people growing up in rural com- communities, people who are struggling for workplace rights, the need for better health care, sort of the vast needs of uh, the growing and growing uh, economically poor working class. Um, and so it was really beautiful to see all those people gathered there. And while we were listening to the speakers, we were listening to the people on stage and we were listening to some of the more prominent faith leaders like Reverend Barber and uh, Cornell West and other labor leaders. You know, people were there talking, sharing ideas, sharing information, demanding these legislative demands, but really demanding action. And there was a very general message of there is energy to capitalize on here among poor people and workers all across the U.S., across the world, also because there are people representing, you know, Mm -hmm. people under El Salvador, Central America. And uh, this is the moment and we need to go back from from this meeting and then continue to organize in our communities and continue to fight for justice because I heard so many people saying we really are starting to feel like we have nothing to lose. And this is our last faith in democracy is what I was hearing from even the people on the stage, maybe the people in the crowd I was hearing more like, we're ready, man, this is... When you were describing it to me, it sounded like people were more focused on what they could learn from each other than what they were at necessarily asking of our leaders in Washington, D.C. And, Wait, well, and I was also struck by how this uh, sounds like the kind of uh, protests we used to have uh, before the COVID pandemic. So many people gathering it face to face from all over the country uh, to share with each other. I think it was one of the first really like long-term organized marches on Washington, not maybe a spontaneous response to a political decision, right? Um, since post-COVID, I mean, I've been involved in tons of spontaneous actions since COVID with lots of people, but it did feel like we're waking up out of these bubbles and we're ready to do something. And the crowd was, I kind of already said, you know, there's people from all different groups and maybe the age could have been skewed a little bit younger, but it was extremely diverse um, array of people from generally non-privileged backgrounds in the United States, which is, you know, the majority of, 
of the citizens of the people who live here. Um, but I spoke with, you know, people from some of these different groups and I'm going to play two voices here. Um, and, and they're different voices coming from different sort of branches of representatives, but you, you'll see why I'm playing both just to show that it was really a struggle, um, a moment of struggle. It felt, you know, but of, of positive solidarity. Right on. So uh, we have this sought here. We have our audio clip. Um, Ready to go. You know, you got all these people, and these are basically low-wage people, and they realize that they have the power now. They can force this, and yeah, that is something different now than what it was before, because they didn't, it was almost like we are at the bottom. Where can we go but up? And I am, you're 25, I'm 67. I am a child of the civil rights era, and I'm from the South, Alabama. So at that point, it was like, what do we have to lose? We are already at the bottom with black people. So all we could do was we had to fight, and that's what we did. And I think that's what it is happening now. But, it, but it's on the economic scale. It's so much, not so much as far as the voters, right, which we need that too. But it's because the people are there. They have children. They're not going to take and stay at this place again where they can go somewhere else. And that's what's scaring a lot of the employers now. We're here in solidarity with was saying something important yes so first we heard from a member of poor people's campaign in in texas um joyce and then uh we heard from lee of the belly of the beast which is a great podcast on cuba i suggest everybody listen to it and you could hear a lot from him and you could imagine why these people fighting you know to to bring down the sanction, to bring down sanctions all over the world, to end the war movement, to, to make a movement for for the masses would be... Yeah, all these wars cost a lot of money. Wars are, so that was the big slogan of the anti-war contingent, you know, divest in war and invest in the poor. But, um, you know, I'll just say that it really did feel like an assembly, and, and that was great. But now I'm going to slightly pivot to some exciting related news that I'd like to share with those who haven't yet heard. Um, and it's related because it, this is a success for the masses and a success for workers and poor people, absolutely. Um, in Colombia, Gustavo Petro won the presidential election in a historical vote because he was a former M-19 guerrilla and the former mayor of capital city of Colombia, Bogota. And Petro will become Colombia's first, that's the first in 200 years, leftist president. And he ran on a platform to combat worsening inequality with landmark policies, including higher taxes on the rich and expanded pensions. This will be an uphold uphill battle for sure um but it's good news and his running mate the afro-colombian environmentalist francia marquez mina will be the first black vice president of colombia and they defeated right-wing businessman rodolfo hernandez in an election that saw colombia's highest ever voter turnout so this is a victory for the mass mass poor movement of colombia uh, and we are going to go to a voice recording from my friend Eban, who uh, is working and living in Colombia right now, about just what the energy is like there, and 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 uh, what you know what it means to 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 the people there. I think the um, the feeling here is quite incredible. I mean, people were celebrating late into the night, 
early into the day, uh, especially here in Cali and, you know, Valle del Cauca, where Cali is, was uh, just overwhelmingly in support of the Pacto Histórico, as well as Cauca. So here people were out in the streets, people were screaming from their houses, uh, uh, you know, just uh, ecstatic at the results. I think a lot of people just couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, it's uh, this is a country in which there's been 200, over 200 years of just right wing hegemony in terms of electoral politics. Uh, so to break that is no small feat and to do it in such a way, you know, building just grassroots democracy from below um, the regions really coming into play in this election, regions that had been for years uh, subject to the, the worst kinds of violence from uh, the armed conflict. You saw images of uh, indigenous folks in Santa Marta, you know, walking miles to vote, people in the Naya River, uh, you know, piling onto small boats, uh, traveling for hours into the rivers to go to vote, you know. So it's just amazing kind of explosion uh, of democracy uh, from uh, from below, like I said, and, and people who, who had previously kind of been written off, uh, like indigenous and Afro-Colombian communities in the periphery, that really came into play and made their voices heard. Right, so that was Evan King in Cali, Colombia, reflecting on Sunday's historic election victory for the left in that country. And when we come back, we're going to hear from two New York labor organizers who just returned from the Labor Notes Conference in Chicago, which had its largest ever turnout this weekend amid a surge in new union organizing across the country. And uh, we will be right back. See the little brown girl She's as old as me She looks just like chocolate Oh, mommy, can't you see We are both in first grade She sits next to me took care of her mom when she skinned her knee she sang a song so pretty on the jungle gym when Jimmy tried to hurt her I punched him in the chin Mom, can she come over to play dolls with me? We could have such fun, Mom. That was Turning Point by Nina Simone. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm Mama Gregorian here with my co-host, John Tarleton. In our second segment today, we turn to the militant rank-and-file wing of the labor movement, which gathered in Chicago this weekend for the annual Troublemakers Conference, sponsored by Labor Notes magazine. The conference was packed with 4,000 attendees, the largest ever in the history of that event. What new plans were hatched, strategies debated, and discussed in relationship form that could blossom into future organizing efforts? Joining us today to chat about all of that and more in New York our New York-based union organizers, Wen Zhuang and Eric Dernbach of the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, or EWOC. Wen and Eric, welcome back to the Independent News Hour on 99.5 FM. Great, thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll start with you, Wen. Can you set the scene for us? Where was the conference held and what was the moon in the room? And, and Eric, feel free to walk in. Obviously, you all were step in. <laughs> Obviously, you all were um, experiencing slightly different things there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I was just saying that I'm still 
still processing it and still so tired from this weekend, but it was right. uh, in Chicago at the Hyatt. Um, there was about, you know, four, I think it was 4,000 people uh, there all weekend, uh, which made it so that each of the workshops were packed to the absolute brim. And when I say that, I don't, I'm not exaggerating. I was, you know, I, I gave, I think two workshops and both of them, I was assuming, okay, we're not going to have that many people. And then once it got started, it was, you know, overflowing in the room. And so uh, a ton of people, the entire weekend, it went, started on Thursday, ended on Sunday. Well, Thursday, it was a, there was a, some, some intros, but it, the workshops and panels started on Friday, um, went through Sunday uh, with, uh, some huge main sessions um, at night and, uh, you know, workshops anywhere from the nuts and bolts of how to win a contract, uh, how to run for union leadership to larger panels uh, talking about bigger ideas and, and visions um, like intergenerational uh, organizing for the long haul, all of that stuff, um, race and labor, um, et cetera. So, yeah, I think it was uh, it was a really big big weekend. Um, it feels difficult to to try and uh, put it into words, but it felt very overwhelming, um, very uh, exciting, um, very motivating. Um, yeah, I don't know, Eric, if you want to if you want to add some more. Eric, I think has been to more labor notes conferences than I have. I think. Um, I think this might be my maybe my fourth ish. Um, yeah, I'm still processing and catching up on sleep. Just so folks know. Labor Notes started in 1979, and it's essentially mostly a monthly labor magazine and website that has grown to become essential reading for everybody kind of on the left of labor. And they also publish books. For instance, Secrets of a Successful Organizer is a must read. You can find it on their website and also offer trainings. Um, but yeah, the, the main exciting event is every two years they hold this conference. And the one two years ago was canceled because of COVID. So, so it's been a while. I feel like there was a lot of pent up energy um, since it's been four years. And it was, I kind of feel like it was electrifying and really exciting. Um, I mean, this is the main gathering space in the US and there's also folks from other countries for kind of rank and file union members and kind of leftists and union activists to come together and learn from each other and strategize about how to like move the labor movement in the US in a more kind of radical, um, militant direction. Because I think as, as your, your listeners know, the labor movement has been declining for like basically 50 years. Only 10% of all workers are union members and only 6% in the private sector. We desperately need to turn this around and Labor Notes is a, is a real center for that. And uh, talking about turning it around, uh, I mean, I saw that there were uh, activists from the Amazon Labor Union, uh, the Starbucks uh, Union were there, and, and others. And what what sort of inspiration did uh, people take from some of these uh, uh, campaigns that have uh, had unexpected uh, breakthroughs? And what did people uh, draw from that? Yeah, I'll go. And I, I think that it, you know, this year's conference came on the heels of some really big historic wins and some kind of unbelievable ones and it was a moment and when Eric said sort of a pent-up energy I think that was exactly the way to describe it is that you know you're seeing you're having this big conference of uh left organizers and labor after a huge Starbucks I think Starbucks is at what 150 stores now maybe even more as we're talking um and you know also the, the historic Amazon win so it was really a place I think the most inspiring thing to see was that all of these historic wins in the past several months have been led first and foremost by workers. Um, it wasn't union staff. It wasn't, you know, outside counsel. It wasn't consulting anything. It was, it was workers leading workers and helping workers and growing organizers by uh, doing the organizing, then teaching it to other people and then scaling up that way. So I think I, I really got to see, you know, this is, this is the way that we're going to, you know, people keep saying, we need to meet this moment. We need to meet this moment. And I really saw this weekend that this is how we're going to meet it is to continue to empower workers, to empower each other so that the organizing they're doing um, is scaling up through them um, and by them. I think that was the one big, I think kind of like, you know, umbrella takeaway I saw all across the board is that it has to be led by workers and it continues, has to continue that way. Yeah, and I would just add, uh, yeah, Starbucks folks were all over the place. Amazon Labor Union folks were there. Some other kind of noteworthy events. I mean, we all remember Striketober last year where there were a lot of high-profile strikes. And then we've had this ongoing what's called Great Resignation with tens of millions of workers quitting their jobs to try to find better jobs. So it's a real indication 
that workers are feeling more confident. And when you're feeling more confident, you're, you're, you're willing to organize. Um, there's also, um, I think, a real interest among workers, and Wen and I are being asked about this all the time now, about workers forming independent unions. And honestly, like that was not on the table a few years ago. Amazon Labor Union has put it on the table. And the idea is that you know, workers um, don't have to wait around for a union to come knocking on the door saying, hey, come join us. You could form your own union, and that could look a bunch of different ways. And Amazon Labor Union basically like ran an election on their own. You know, they fundraised for it um, and, and they're doing it on their own, um, which is really exciting. And I think it gives workers more options um, for what to do. And again, this is really not on the agenda anywhere at the last labor note. So yeah, very exciting. Right. I just want to point out that our current June print edition of The Independent uh, features a cover story on uh, this very upsurge in, in union organizing, uh, the rank-and-file worker-led, uh, featuring the Emergency uh, Workplace Organizing Committee, which, of course, both of you all are in, involved in. So, um, yeah, it's something we've been really excited to, to follow. Um, and is there a sense, I mean, like with Amazon Labor Union in uh, Starbucks, that they can actually win those uh Contracts. I mean, the the ultimate goal here is not just to form a union, but to win uh, legally binding contracts that transform people's uh, lives for the better. Any, yeah, any thoughts? Think, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that you know what I always say that whatever workers win, um, what you win is a uh, reflection of the power you build, and I think that that's really what. And I know that that sounds abstract in some ways, but. I think that this weekend, especially, we saw, you know, not only is all of this sort of happening, right? Like people are forming independent unions, people are organizing on a mass scale at a mass rate, um, people are talking to people, they're starting to like build that kind of organizing lingo into everyday conversations at the workplace. Um, so not only are we facing that, but this weekend really, I think there was a lack of, there was a embrace of what was happening. And like Eric said, it wasn't, People weren't afraid to talk about it, right? Like, how do we do this? What are our fears? What are, what are our worries? What hasn't worked in the past, right? Like, what? there's so much that's happening now that there isn't any precedent for, right? Like, we don't know how this will end up. We haven't seen something like this happen in the past. Uh, when this has happened before, it has ended this way. So that's really all we have to go off of. But we, what we also have is the fact that workers are building power at an unprecedented rate, right? So they're acting like unions way before they even have won a union election or won a contract. They're doing direct actions like marching on the bus, like putting majority petitions out in their workplace, um, interrupting meetings, all of these things that you they're doing without having gotten to that point where normally workers would take action like that. So I think that that's kind of a long way to answer the question of like, I, I don't, I think that that's, uh, I don't know the answer to whether or not they will win or how, how strong this contract is, but I do know that uh, whatever they do win is just going to be a reflection of the kind of power they can, they, I know that they will continue to build. And it became very clear this weekend that they are primed to do so. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's kind of two, maybe two more themes to throw on the table here. There's this idea, you know, that sociologists and I think political scientists have put forward that there is kind of this new generation of folks entering the, 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 the job market, you know, call them Gen Z and millennials that are kind of radicalized, political, uh, politicized, some college educated, and are really confronting um, an economy that's not meeting their needs. And so a lot of them are turning to unionization. I think this process started maybe around Occupy Wall Street, folks started noticing it. And so that's contributing to this upsurge. It's not, it's not the, the full extent of it. And then also this idea about labor upsurge theory. There's this idea that the labor movement does not grow gradually, really ever. Um, it grows in spurts. And we had one in the 1930s in the private sector where millions of workers were organizing and striking. And then we had it in the 1960s among public sector workers. And so folks that have been around the labor movement, you know, a, a little while, like myself, 20 years, we're always wondering, like, when is the next upsurge? And so folks are wondering that now. Are we at the beginning of the next upsurge? We, we will not know for a few more years. But a main theme of the conference is what do we do now um, to prepare and contribute to this upsurge? And I, I think one, one great answer is just like continuing these kind of rank and file discussions and having new, uh, training new folks to organize. This is where the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee really comes in, putting materials in the hands of all kinds of workers on how to self-organize. Because we will, you know, I've been on staff for, for 20 years. 
uh, with various unions, we will never have enough staff to do all the organizing that needs to be done. We need to facilitate the energy, creativity, enthusiasm, and militancy of millions of workers. Um, and staff can play a role in that, absolutely. Um, but we need to democratize this process and get millions of folks in motion. Yeah. And I presume that at Labor Notes, everybody was, uh, you know, holding their breath. Is this a search we've been waiting for? And, and what can we do to contribute to it? And uh, from what I can hear, the focus is on rank and file, um, which means, you know, taking the power out of maybe the upper echelon of a union or um those that might stand out with power, right, and giving it to the bottom rung of the workers, the everyday workers, whether it's an already established union, they're the ones fighting, or whether it's um, a, a group of workers just fighting for their rights, so they're the ones doing it, uh, correct? I'll, I'll just say yeah, briefly, and Wen can chime in as well. Look, I, I want to be fair, I mean, also the AFL-CIO convention was held in earlier in the week, which is the Federation of Unions. Um, it's a tremendous amount of work and a major challenge just to keep unions running, and so, you know, and so unions have to do the things that they do. But but honestly, it might seem strange to hear this. I don't think we can look to unions, established unions for leadership on creating new ways of organizing. Unions are very kind of stuck in the way they do things. So we are looking at new organizing models and new organizing forms. And I think if you look at past upsurges, that is what led the way. And then unions caught up later. It's just the nature of things. As established mm-hmm. institutions, you get very risk averse and kind of wedded to the status quo. But I think, you know, those of us in in the labor notes community know that that's not adequate. Right. And uh, we would love to continue this conversation, um, but we hope to have you both back on, Eric Dernbach and Wen Zwang. Oh, but first, please um, just let people know how they can reach out to you, um, reach out to Ewok, and uh, why they should reach out to Ewok. Wen, please. Yeah. I mean, I think that Eric said this best is just that, you know, we saw a lot of people who are coming out of uh, very difficult situations after, you know, two and a half years of COVID, the great resignation. And Ewok is really here to give people um, to have, to have there as someone on the other end to say, like, when you're in a moment of, you know, sometimes desperation, sometimes like deep anger with your work, with everyday life, you can say, OK, I can do something about this and I can do something that uh, builds a habit. For the future and for long term. And so any worker in any industry at any level um, who wants to get involved and organize their workplace can reach out to us. It's workerorganizing.org slash get support. Um, and there's a form that you can fill out and someone will get in touch with you uh, within 72 hours, I believe. So workerorganizing.org slash support. Absolutely. Workerorganizing.org slash support. That's Wen Zhuang and Eric Dernbach of the EWOC, Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. Thank you so much for joining us on WBAI. We are going to go to a short music break. Just like chocolate Oh, mommy, can't you see We are both in first grade She sits next to me I took care of her mom When she skinned her knee She sang a song so pretty On the jungle gym When Jimmy tried to hurt her I punched him in the chin Mom, can she come over To play dolls with me that was more of Turning Point by Nina Simone. You're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, uh, John Tarleton, and here with my co-host, Amber Gagarian. Before we move on to our third segment, 
We need to urge all our listeners to please consider supporting this radio station. As Reggie was saying at the top of the hour, uh, the station is behind on its monthly uh, rent at the four times square skyscraper in Midtown, where we have our uh, transmitter and antenna that makes it possible to beam the signal, not only all across the five boroughs, but well beyond into New Jersey, the Hudson Valley, Long Island, this unique radio station that's in the middle of the FM dial to keep us on the air. 212-209-2950. Imagine turning in to WBAI one day, 99.5, and you don't hear us broadcasting. And think about everything that you would be losing. You're losing hearing voices from everyday New Yorkers. You're hearing um, unfiltered voices, uh, non-corporate backed voices. Uh, We are bringing to you, we are doing the work. And, you know, we are a team of volunteers here putting together amazing shows um, independent news, and uh, we're volunteering our time. Uh, and in New York, it's a hustle. Time is money. So we are asking our listeners to be a part of this community, really show that you are a part of this community, and donate to us, whatever you can. That might be five bucks a month. That might be five bucks a week. The cost of two slices of pizza, a slice of pizza. Please call 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number to wbai.org. Call 212-209-2950 or online at give the number to WBAI.org to donate some money to us. Maybe you think, oh, I'll do it later. This time, do it now. Do it when you get out of your car. If you're at home, do it now. Give us five bucks, ten bucks, a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, whatever you can. Keep us on the air. That's 212-209-2950 or give the number to WBAI.org. That's right. It takes a community to make a community radio work, this non-corporate, non-commercial radio station with all the unique voices, all the uh, political and uh, public affairs coverage, the cultural programming uh, throughout the week, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's made possible by listeners like yourself that have always come through in the past. We all know the station has struggled financially at various times over the, the last decade or more, but every time our listeners have, have come through and made it possible to keep on doing all this original and very important broadcasting. That's why we're asking you to call 212-209-2950. And I know sometimes people are like, well, when is when is this going to end? You know, uh, WBAI always seems to be in the pinch at one point or another. And part of that's just the nature of community radio. I mean, like we don't have all the, you know, huge corporate sponsors of NPR or anything like that, but there is good news. Uh, the Pacifica Network went through some uh, turmoil in recent years. Uh, things are more uh, organized now, and the network and its stations, including WBAI, will be eligible for a Corporation for Public Broadcasting funding starting next year, and that will bring several million dollars into the network and, and go to uh, the five stations and will be uh, uh, a tremendous re- relief. And there's various uh, activists in, around the Pacifica Network who've worked very diligently to get uh, everything back up to standard with CPB and get that money flowing again. Right now, we just got to get through this year, get through 2022, make our rent payments at four times square. Also, as Reggie was saying, we're behind on the rent at 388 Atlantic Avenue, where we have our studios. Um, our um, The person who owns that building has been very generous, and we want to take care of the rent with them as well. Um, so one more time, 212-209-2950, or you can go to give number two, wbai.org and pull out the plastic and uh, support the station uh, with a one-time contribution or become a WBAI buddy for as little as $5, $10 a month or more. And uh, we'll leave it at that for now. We want to move on to our next uh, important guest. And uh, and we're gonna, in this third uh, segment, uh, we're going to uh, talk about uh, – this Sunday will be the 53rd annual NYC Pride March. Uh, it'll start at 12 noon. Hundreds of thousands of people are expected to line the parade route, which begins at 25th Street and 5th Avenue, and will make its way uh, through Chelsea to 16th Street and 5th Avenue. Uh, the Pride March, of course, commemorates the 1969 Stonewall Uprising that launched the modern gay rights movement. It'll be the first full-scale Pride March held since the pandemic began. But also on Sunday, there will be the fourth annual Queer Liberation March, which promotes itself as 
cop and corporate free alternative to the traditional pride march. Joining us now to talk about all this is Jay Walker of the Reclaim Pride Coalition, which organizes the Queer Liberation March. Jay, welcome back to the show. Hi, John. Hi, Amber. Thanks so much for having me. Certainly. And, and so for starters, can uh, you just uh, uh, tell us about the Queer Lab- Liberation March, uh, how it began in 2019, and what sets it apart from the traditional Pride March? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we hold the, the Queer Liberation March in, in honor of the very first uh, Pride March, which was the Christopher Street Liberation Day March held in, the last Sunday in June in 1970. Um, what we, uh, the organizers within Reclaim Pride Coalition felt um, as we uh prepared for the 2018 Pride March, uh, Pride Parade with, um, with Heritage of Pride and conversations with the then leadership of Heritage of Pride afterward was that that parade had drifted too far away from the original intent of the march, which is a march for our freedom, which is a march for our rights, which is a political march. And, you know, as, as time went on, as the LGBTQIA2S plus movements the many different movements gained ground in a few places uh, after we got to a certain point in the struggle, um, you know, folks who were more privileged sort of began to feel that they, that they had arrived, they had gotten everything that they wanted and all the folks on the margin just got dropped by the wayside. Um, you know, New Yorkers who paid attention to this stuff for a long time might remember that after um, marriage equality was achieved, the Empire State Pride agenda, which had been fighting for rights, at, at the, you know, in New York for decades, dissolved because oh, same-sex marriage is is done, so everything's fine now. You know, neglecting to think about you know folks from more marginalized existences and the struggles that that we continue to have. That's poor people. That's black people. That's brown people. That's immigrant people. That's people, you know, that's uh, trans people, especially. Um, and so, you know, and the, the, the pride parade began, you know, reflected that as well. It became less and less political with every passing year, especially after, um, after uh, marriage equality was achieved, um, you know, in the Supreme Court with, uh, with Edie Windsor's case. And uh, as they were preparing for the 2019 March, which would mark the 50th anniversary for uh, the 50th, well, 50th year marker uh, for, for Stonewall, um, it became just clearer and clearer that the police were exerting an incredible amount of control over the decision making in that that year's uh, Pride Parade. Uh, we've had a long standing issue with over barricading of the Pride route of the Pride Parade route and over barricading of the neighborhoods in the West Village after the parade. Uh, and of course, there had been long standing and, and sort of fermenting upset about the overproliferation of corporations and corporate logos and corporate control over the parade. So it, it just sort of all came to a head after the 2018 um, parade. And uh, after a few meetings with the Heritage of Pride folks, the people that put on the annual parade, uh, the Reclaim Pride movement uh, leadership, myself included, decided, you know what, if we're going to have something in 2019 that's really going to you know, honor 50 years since Stonewall, we're going to have to do it ourselves. And that's how the first Queer Liberation March was launched. Right. And you keep saying, you know, the uh, Stonewall and the original uh, Pride March was was a protest and it had a militant beginning. Could you just explain what that militant beginning is and sort of juxtapose it to this current time of crease, increasingly violent attacks against the LGBTQIA plus community by Republican elected officials and more. Um, and yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the you know the original you know the Stonewall uprising or riot or rebellion. Lots of different people call it lots of different things, and I'm fine with all three of those terms. Uh, was um, you know protesting state-sponsored terrorism of queer spaces. Um, that's essentially what was happening that night at the Stonewall Inn. The police, under orders, were raiding a gay space that they had previously been taking hush money to not raid 
and they would periodically raid the gay spaces and lock up people and get them criminal records. And then they would go back to receiving their hush money to ignore the gay space. And then periodically they would go back and they would raid the gay space and lock up people and get, and get them criminal records. And this was an ongoing thing that was going on for years and years and years. All the gay play spaces were run by organized crime. And it was this sort of tacit agreement that these sort of two essentially homophobic institutions, you know, the mafia, essentially organized crime and the NYPD with, with, with queer people caught in the middle. And um, that one particular night in June of 1969, uh, the people that were there at Stonewall and the people from the community just had had enough and they rebelled against it and they threw rocks and they threw heels and they, they formed kick lines and they called people out into the streets and the riots, the rebellion, the uprising lasted throughout that entire weekend and, the, and into the coming week was people just being fed up to here. And so, and it was out of that energy that the first And, and it was two trans, transgender women, uh, Sylvia Rivera and Marcia Johnson that are, often credited for helping spark that moment is that um you know depending upon who you listen to uh, sylvia and marcia definitely participated in that whole weekend of riots some people say that one or the other was there on that first night some people say not uh, you know i don't sure i i adore sylvia i knew sylvia i organized with sylvia marcia i knew from around they were wonderful leaders and their memory should be venerated especially given the way that um that, that both um passed uh but you know they're, they're they're definitely a part of the story and they definitely need to be revered so absolutely and and, uh, and now here we are today in 2022 and as amba was noting uh, there's this incredible backlash that's being uh, generated and targeted at the lgbt lgbtq plus community yeah all over the country in state legislatures and um in 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 courts in different places it's gotten really bad particularly for for trans kids and trans youth but also just in, in at a at a basic level of dehumanization kind of 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 queer identities you know the florida don't say gay bill and there are several other of those don't say gay bill you know uh, uh targeting um, targeting our education system and trying to erase uh, queer identities from even existence within the realm of 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 uh, the educational system, um, but you know we're also concerned about the draft ruling that was released or the yeah the draft opinion um, or ruling that was released uh, in the Supreme Court regarding uh, the Boggs case, which seems very clearly to be overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, that's why this year's Queer Liberation March is called the Queer Liberation March for Trans and BIPOC Freedom, Reproductive Justice, and Bodily Autonomy, because we see all of these issues as being connected. The Supreme Court is essentially, you know, saying in this in this in this leaked opinion that women don't have a right to control their own bodies. And similarly, all these laws against um, trans kids being able to get uh, adequate medical care uh, in in their youth and, and, and going after parents for 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 getting uh, appropriate medical care for their for their trans kids um you know they're being you know that's being seized upon and parents are being threatened with arrest and investigation and what have you and all of this boils down to the fact that of a, of a federal government or a state government it's trying to to exert control over our bodies it's taking us back into the realm of slavery where the government says you know where the government seizes control over your body right and uh, we have to go here in a minute but real quickly we just want to get a couple of things from you uh with this year's queer liberation march uh one can you uh give us the the details on when and where um it will be and also uh your um how y'all have uh, dealt with the nypd which at times has uh, treated the march march harshly and what would you say to people who might be a little on edge about uh, you know, being at an unpermitted protest, even though there will be tens of thousands of uh, people there. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And yes, it is true. Uh, at the end of the 2020 mm-hmm. March and at the end of the 2020 March, the NYPD used ridiculous pretexts to attack uh, our marchers near Washington Square or p- really to attack people 
at our, our at the at the close of our. March. It was very violent in 2020. Very violent. Continue. Very violent in 2020, and it, it threatened a higher level of violence in 2021. Although it didn't get there, um, we have put in place uh, certain uh, marshalling strategies and videotaping strategies to try to um, to do a harm, do a harm reduction, a de-escalation presence at the arch uh especially since that it that arch the the archway it puts us only about a block away from where the heritage of pride uh parade uh viewing stand is going to be on 8th street and 5th avenue so our two marches like don't cross each other but we kind of abut a little bit right there so right. we know there's going to be a higher police presence but um you know we're doing everything that we can the NYPD is unpredictable they get in their feels especially on anything that's devoted to in any way to standing up for black lives which is a standing is a standing uh uh topic for for the queer liberation march but regardless we're going forward uh we are gathering at one p.m. at Foley Square. We're stepping off on our march at 2 p.m. to march north to Washington Square. And also for any folks from the African diaspora and the LGBTQIA2S plus communities, we're going to be having a very special honoring the ancestors ceremony starting at 11 a.m. on Sunday the 26th, uh, right before the Queer Liberation March at the African Burial Ground, which is one block west of Foley Square, um, uh, just sort of to honor, um, to honor our, uh, the roots of the African diaspora and to, to, to make it plain how important that is to the LGBTQIA2S plus communities. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there, but Jay Walker from the Reclaim Pride Coalition, thank you so much for joining us again on WBAI radio. Thank you. Thank you both. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Thank you. And so um, we're going to go to a fourth mini segment now here with uh, you, John, John Tarleton, the editor-in-chief of the Independent Newspaper. And um, the first round of Democratic primaries will be held in one week from today for all statewide offices and state assembly seats. And early voting is already underway. Progressive and socialist candidates are challenging machine Democrats in a number of key races. John, you've been following this closely. Can you talk about some of the latest developments that have caught up in your that have caught your eye? Right. I mean, we're going to be uh, doing coverage uh, in next Tuesday's show on Election Day, and we'll be talking with all sorts of people uh, involved in in this uh, primary season, and especially from the left. And, um, yeah, we have another cycle here where there's a number of strong left candidates running, especially uh, in state assembly races, uh, uh, also Anna Maria Archila in the lieutenant governor's race and Jamani Williams for governor. Um, but uh, one thing we've seen uh, in, in the last few days is a number of assembly districts uh, have been flooded uh, with uh, literature in the mailboxes have been flooded with a literature claiming that various progressives and socialists are essentially pro-criminal and are going to, uh, you know, uh, endanger the, everybody's lives. And, of course, the people paying for this are, are m- mostly billionaire real estate developers who don't want their taxes to go up. So, of course, once again, we see crime being used and weaponized or, uh, to try to uh, convince people to vote against the, what might be their own best interests and in, in stoke uh, stoke fear this uh this group uh common sense uh, new york uh they did this in city council races last year uh targeted uh, uh, again a number of left candidates uh um i remember michael hollingsworth who a uh, socialist who's running for city council in central brooklyn like the 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 card that they were sending out in the mail like literally had a white woman clutching her pearls and with Michael looking menacing. Uh, long-time really, community organizer. Yeah, long-time tenant organizer um, with Crown Heights Tenant Union. So they're trying this again, and, and uh, we'll see if it's as effective. Last year, you know, Eric Adams was stoking the, the crime fear every day as a mayoral candidate. Maybe that has uh, uh, calmed down somewhat. He's obviously been very ineffective uh, in that role uh, now that he's mayor. So we'll see if that has any impact. We're also seeing tons of money. Uh, pouring into certain uh, endangered incumbents. Uh, one who stands out uh, is uh, uh, Kevin Cahill, who's uh, north of the city, also facing a socialist challenger. 
up in the New Paltz uh, Woodstock area, and and he's the chair of the insurance uh, committee. And boy, every insurance uh, company under the sun is trying to ride to his rescue. He's been very good to them, and we're seeing that with some other incumbents. They're just they have almost no small donors backing them, but they you know get the one and two and four thousand dollar checks and are hoping that can save their bacon. And we'll be covering this more uh, next Tuesday. Um, but of course, now we need to wrap up. And, right. And uh, just, say- you can go online to independent.org and read about how much some of these people are backed by corporate interest. Yeah, we have we have fresh coverage that went up today mm-hmm. uh, from a, a race in lower Manhattan with a, a Wall Street back candidate there. Um, also facing a grassroots socialist challenge. And uh, yeah, we, we're going to have more coverage uh, throughout this uh, last week at independent.org. And but we have to say goodbye for now. Thanks to our board a- operator, Reggie Johnson. And uh, once again, that number 212-209-2950, support this station with whatever you can. And Amba, what's our uh, musical outro this week? This is Baby by Os Mutantes. Saber da piscina, da margarina, da Carolina, da gasolina. Você precisa saber. This is the mic check for Cat Radio Cafe. The testing. Testing. Tune in to Cat Radio Cafe Tuesday night at 9 here on WBAI. I'm Janet Coleman. I'm David Dozer. The Displaced Playwright. On Tuesday, June 21st at 9 p.m., we'll discuss Garden of Allah, Romy Nordlinger's one-woman show about the great renegade stage and screen star Alan Azimova, who courted controversy simply by existing. Tuesday night at 9 here on WBAI. Cat Radio Cafe. Cafe. Hey, my cats drink coffee? During a seltzer shortage. Of course. We have seen so far in, in our hearings that President Trump knew that his claims of a stolen election were false. Arizona Representative Liz Cheney, vice chair of the committee on the January 6th attack on the Capitol. You have seen that he knew that Mike Pence could not legally refuse to count electoral votes. And you have seen what President Trump did to pressure Mike Pence into taking illegal action. Join WBAI on Tuesday, June 21st at 1 p.m. and June 23rd at 3 p.m. as WBAI continues its broadcast of Pacifica Radio's coverage of the January 6th hearings. Over the course of our next hearings, you will see information about President Trump's efforts John Eastman efforts, the Trump legal team's efforts to apply pressure to Republican state legislatures, state officials, and others. That's Tuesday, June 21st at 1 p.m. and Thursday, June 23rd at 3 p.m., the January 6th House hearings into the attack on the Capitol. Right here on listener-sponsored WBAI.org and WBAI New York. program was the independent news hour heard Tuesdays at 5 p.m. here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online coming up in the next couple of minutes or so will be the WBAI evening news with Paul DiRienzo but first 
need to make an appeal to y'all listening audience out there. As you know, WBAI is attempting to raise some funds to pay the bills for the tower, the transmitter tower, which is responsible for us to be broadcast throughout the 90-mile radius, and also raising funds to pay the back rent to the studios here at WBAI. Now, clearly, when you're two months behind the transmitter rent and three months behind the rent here at the studios at WBAI, 